Hi, this is John with Prodigal Church. We're so glad that you've downloaded this week's message. Our online ministry has enabled people from all over the world to access our weekly teachings. We're so grateful for you, whoever you are and wherever you are. For all things Prodigal, download the Prodigal app at your app store. And if you consider Prodigal Church your home, would you consider donating monthly at our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Thanks again for listening online. Now let's dive right into this week's teaching. No time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind No, and there's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind I hope we'll all be you that song by DC Talk. Okay, I wish we'd all been ready. Um, are you rapture ready? My friends and I in high school, we would proclaim that we are bachelors till the rapture or until we get married. Um, every so often, Christians would get enamored with the end of the world. And whenever that happens, the book of Revelation takes center stage. And people start trying to stare into the crystal ball to try and connect the events described in the book of Revelation with the events that are happening all around us today. Uh, some people are doing this constantly, but every once in a while it grips the culture. And then whoever you hate are the evil ones running the country and they're the Antichrist. I've heard Christians say that Obama is the Antichrist and he was trying to create a one world government. Back in the 70s, they said that the barcodes that you use to purchase things was the mark of the beast, so Christians shouldn't buy anything that has the barcodes on there. And today we hear things like, the vaccines are the mark of a beast, so you must refuse it as a Christian. Now I'm going to assume that most of us have been taught that the book of Re Revelation is a detailed map describing the end of the world, okay, how the world's gonna end. And if we can just interpret the symbols correctly, if we can just understand the times, then we can get ready because Jesus is coming, the tribulation is coming, the rapture is coming, Armageddon is coming. And I'm going to assume that most of us are familiar with this way of reading and trying to understand the book of Revelation. And today, this sermon is going to push back against that view, okay? You may not end up agreeing with me, and that's fine. Um, I know that not everyone agrees with me on every point. You guys are wrong on lots of things. But we're going to push back on that way of reading and understanding the book of Revelation. Um, and perhaps this will propel you into more study, into critical thinking about the book of Revelation and beyond, whether you end up agreeing with me or not. Christians can disagree on this. And Christians have disagreed on this for a very long time. I mentioned several weeks ago that the book of Revelation was one of the last books of the Bible to get into the Bible because Christians had a difficult time understanding it. Um, it is such a unique um, piece of literature and so confusing at times. Now, in a 25-minute sermon, it is absolutely impossible to do an in-depth study about the end times and the book of Revelation. I cannot address all of the verses there. 
But my hope is by the end of the morning that we are going to have a, a more beautiful picture of Jesus and his call on our lives. So let's do it. Get your Bibles ready. This is the finale of our Binge Reading the Bible sermon series. We're going to be reading lots of scripture today, so have your Bibles ready to go and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Note, everything that John saw was the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Greek here, the word and, it's the word chi, it's a conjunction. It can be translated even, okay? Which means that John is saying the word of God, even Jesus Christ, which, which is Jesus Christ. So everything that John saw in this book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's the testimony of Jesus. And so very different than a map for the end of the world, this one reveals Jesus. It's a book about Jesus. The word Revelation in Greek is apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse. And it means to unveil or to reveal, to disclose. Now, that's not what we think of when we hear the word apocalypse now, right? It has become synonymous with disaster. But this revelation that John is writing is not an unveiling or an apocalypse about the end of the world. It is an, an unveiling or a revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is a type of literature called apocalyptic literature. Okay, It is a genre that existed from 200 B.C., to 200 AD. It was very popular. It was, it was a literature characterized by dramatic, sometimes surreal symbols to denote historical events and spiritual realities. It was literature intended to make uh, an impact on people because of its, the, the images it would evoke. It would, then it would motivate them to live in a certain kind of way. The literature was almost always subversive to the ruling powers of the time, and in John's day, it was undermining Rome, the empire of Rome, the, the rulers of all the world. Many believe that the reason the book of Revelation uses so many symbols is because that the early Christian audience would understand it, but the Romans would not. Understanding the kind of writing something is helps determine what it means. If you think a cookbook is a grocery list. You can make the cookbook work for you, okay? There's a list of food at the beginning, so it can be a guide for you to get groceries. But it, it probably won't help you do a number of other things, right? You will probably need more than what is on that recipe. So it's not a very good grocery list. A grocery list is meant to get you food for a week, uh, not just food for a meal. So if you go to the grocery store and you get a bunch of stuff off the recipe, you won't get a bunch of other things that you'll need. And also, you'll misuse what the cookbook is for, right? It's meant to help create things, not just buy things. The way you view what a book is will shape what you get out of it. You're liable to miss what the text was actually trying to communicate in its own agenda but also you're likely to misuse it by making it do things that it was never designed to do. 
And I think this is most often the case with the book of Revelation. This is a painting called Guernica by Pablo Picasso. Guernica was a town bombed by the Nazis in 1942. In this painting, Picasso is making a statement about a historical event. Like apocalyptic literature, this is a historical painting. It is communicating historical events, but not in a literal way. You will miss the point of the painting if you say, that guy on the ground, what's his name? Uh, is he related to her? How old do you think he is? Uh, do people in Granica really look like this? Man, they must look next to like a nuclear power plant at all because their faces are all deformed and contorted. Uh, is this the result of the bomb? Oh, that poor horse. What's that horse's name? How much does he weigh? We miss the point if we try to extract literal information out of this. To get the message of the painting and to get apocalyptic literature, you have to stop analyzing things in a literal way and just let it impact you. Let the images work, to create, work together to create something within you. And when you do this, you'll discover that this painting communicates something that a literal snapshot never could. It captures the horror of this event, the macabre dimension of it, the, the diabolical dimension of this bombing, the pain of this event, the evil of this event. In our country, in our culture, we're obsessed with literalness. We just wanna go, Picasso, why do you gotta be so fancy? Just tell us in a literal way. But you can say things in a non-literal way that are more profound than saying it in a literal way. A picture, a snapshot, can give you a scene of what a town looked like after the bombing. And if that's what you're looking for, that's fine. The snapshot is not going to capture the evil of it. So it is with apocalyptic literature. If Revelation was supposed to be an inspired cryptogram, that 21st century people are to decode, then it couldn't have meant anything for the people it was originally written to in the first century. Just look at the opening verses. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place because the time is near. What if the apocalyptic or cataclysmic events described in Revelation and in other parts of the Bible were ways of referencing historical events that was future for them, but was past for us. Events that happened after the apostles wrote their gospels and their letters, but they weren't thousands of years away, they were decades away. I contend that this is the case with much of Revelation and with much of other apocalyptic references in the New Testament. Now, there are lots of examples of this. I'm only going to share a couple today, okay? So we can dig in. I give you permission to dig in on your own time to continue a greater study of this magnificent book in the Bible, okay? The first one is the rapture, okay? The word rapture isn't found in the Bible at all. It is a, a, a translation of the Latin word raptura, which means to be caught up. And it's referenced in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 through 18. Um, and this idea of the rapture comes from two passages of scripture, the one in Thessalonians and the one by Jesus himself. We don't have time to dive into the, uh, to the Thessalonians passage. More on that perhaps another time. But let's read what Jesus himself says 
and see how we've used this um, to inform our idea of what the rapture is. Matthew 24. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. I think some ancient context could be particularly helpful in reading and understanding this passage. During the times of Jewish revolt, or really any national revolt against Rome, uh, Rome would have soldiers go into a field, take one of the people, and leave someone else. They would go into someone's home in the middle of the night, grab one person, and leave the other. They would randomly grab people, no rhyme or reason. They would take them out on a hill, and they would crucify them. It was a way of saying, you want to mess with us? Well, this is what happens to your loved ones. This is how Rome kept the peace. Then they would bury them in a mass grave. There's historical records, 4,000 people being crucified at one time. To me, it seems that Jesus here is talking about a pending disaster where the one being taken is not the lucky one. So what is this cataclysmic event that Jesus is referencing? Many historians and theologians believe it was the destruction of the Jewish temple in 66 AD, which is after the time of Jesus, but still uh, uh, the time of the disciples. And earlier in the chapter, the same very chapter in Matthew, uh, we read this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. They're, they're talking about the temple. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? See, the temple was the absolute epicenter of the Jewish faith. And really for the first couple decades of Christianity, um, it was still a temple faith. It was still inextricably linked to the Jewish faith. The, the temple was a sight to see. It, it took over 40 years to build. The cataclysmic event that Jesus is referring to is this destruction of this Jewish temple by the Romans. And its importance in their faith can't be overstated. To them, it would have been the end of the world. Okay, so there's a historical way of reading what we often call the rapture. Let's do another one, okay? The mark of the beast. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, it says this in verse 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands 
or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and that number is 666. Who's the beast? Who's the Antichrist? We've got to refuse the mark of the beast. What would the original audience have understood? What would they have thought? In the ancient world, uh, the Greek letters of the alphabet and the Hebrew letters of the alphabet, each letter had a numerical value. Uh, so uh, J, for me, it'd be J-O-H-N. The J is worth 13, the O is worth 20, the H is worth 17, and so on. And so, very well, my name could be 117, okay? John, 117, that's my name, the number of my name. This is called gematria. And it was a common practice and commonly understood throughout um, the ancient Near East uh, and to Asia Minor and also throughout um, uh, Europe. Now, who is 666? Because the, the Bible says here, uh, it calls for wisdom, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, that number is 666. Would you be surprised to know that 666 is Caesar Nero, who was a first century Roman emperor who persecuted Christians. He was the first great persecutor of Christianity, and he was unbelievably vicious. Roman historians tell us that Nero would take Christians, dip them in oil, light them in fire, to use as light for his garden parties. When Revelation was written, there is another emperor in power, and he's beginning to act much like Nero. His name was Caesar Domitian. He begins to call himself God. He's killing Christians. And so the early readers would know that the emperor here is the one who is the Antichrist. And Caesar Domitian, his numerical value is not 666, but 616. And we actually have ancient manuscripts of the book of Revelation that says the number of his name is 616 instead of 666, uh, referring to Emperor Domitian, not um, Emperor Nero. Now, I do think that the original, the, the earliest manuscripts have 666, but what the 616 tells us is that they were referencing an emperor, that this was common knowledge at the time. Uh, 666 Nero seems to be the original. It demonstrates that they're thinking of an emperor, not Obama, not Oprah, not Martha Stewart, okay, and certainly not a vaccine. There is one more section of Revelation that I want us to look at because it really is there to point us to the beauty of Jesus. It reveals the vision of Jesus. It's in Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to walk through it together as we close our time. And I think there's no better or more fitting way to end this series than to study this chapter in the Bible's last book. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, in general, in apocalyptic literature, a number is never a number. 
It is always a symbol, always a concept. Okay, and just to give you a quick key to that, three is the symbol of perfection, four is comprehensiveness, right? The all-inclusive, the, the four corners of the earth. Six is the number of humanity, which we were, as humans, were created on the sixth day. It's just below seven, right? Which is perfection, means God. 10 is the symbol of completeness because it's the highest number you can get to without repeating numbers. Uh, 12 represents God's people, right? The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples, and so multiples of 12 also references to God's people. And then 1,000 stands for something that is indefinitely long or large. It doesn't literally mean one more than 999. And so John and others use these numbers and multiples of these numbers throughout their apocalyptic literature. Verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals? and open the scroll. John makes it clear that this scroll is sealed with seven seals, okay? In other words, it is perfectly sealed. No one can open it. Verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. John says that one of the elders tells him, See the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is able. And then John looks, but he does not see a lion. He sees a lamb. And, and not just a lamb. In Greek here, it's, it's a little lamb. And not just a little lamb, but a little lamb as if it had been slain. Now, I'm going to be talking uh, quite a bit about sheep and lambs this morning. Uh, and I'm not going to get sheepish about it, okay? Uh, that would be bad. Now, if you're thinking, uh, man, I sure hope he doesn't make any more sheep jokes. Um, don't worry, I will. I will be making more sheep jokes, okay? My apologies. Now, what the Apostle John is doing here, he hears a lion, but he sees a sheep. He sees a lamb. Sheep are helpless. They don't have fangs. They can't bite you. They don't have claws. They cannot scratch you. They can't sting. They don't run fast. They can't climb a tree. They don't blend into their surroundings. Sheep are without camouflage right? Unless there's some sort of marshmallow field somewhere, right? They're the worst camouflage things on earth. Is that a fuzzy white thing bouncing across the field? The sheep are helpless. They're not ferocious. They don't hunt for their food. You don't hear survival stories of a group of campers who were once hunted by a pack of wild sheep. This is the brilliance of John's revelation. John will take this widespread, well-known, violent image of power, the lion, and he fuses it with a symbol of its opposite. Nothing is more opposite from a roaring lion than a little slain sheep. He puts them together. They're identified as the same. And in so doing, John subverts the meaning of power. The one that everyone thought was going to be a ferocious lion is actually like a slain little lamb. He was like a slain lamb because he was killed, but he was resurrected. 
That's why he wasn't a slain lamb. He was like a slain lamb because Jesus died, but he rose from the grave. He's, he's lion-like in that he's mighty. He's lion-like in that he triumphs. He's lion-like in that he's a warrior. But the way that he's mighty is like a little slain lamb. The way that he is mighty is the way of sacrificial love. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. John is actually saying the opposite message of the empire of Rome. Rome, power over people, peace through violence. That's not how Jesus wins. That's not how Jesus triumphs. That's how Caesar wins. That's how the world wins. No, the ultimate victory is not through violence or coercion. It's through love. When God flexes his almighty biceps, it doesn't look like a lion roaring with authority. It looks like a little slain lamb. And that is way more powerful. Revelation 5 is a symbolic representation of the cross of Christ. Calvary is where the scroll was opened. Calvary is where the slain lamb triumphed. Calvary is where God's character is revealed. Calvary is where God's method for overcoming evil was put into practice. And he is writing this to churches that are facing persecution and likely martyrdom. They will be killed. He is saying, when it looks like you're losing, you will win. This is a message of hope and triumph in the midst of death and loss when the bad guys look like they're going to gain victory. If God runs the universe and overcomes evil with the power of self-sacrificial love, that means we too must conduct our lives in the same manner. We run our life under his lordship with the power of sacrificial love, not with the power of the sword. That's the kind of power we trust. If God relies on that power, then we too should rely on that power. What power do you rely on? Really? In our culture, it, it might not be the power of the sword in our day-to-day -day lives, but it might be the power of the wallet, the bank account. We don't trust in any other power. That is not the way we overcome. It's not the way you overcome. You will not overcome with more money. You will overcome through sacrificial love, through the blood of the Lamb, the power of Jesus. The book of Revelation was written to early Christians who were enduring great suffering and who were tempted to compromise and to cave in to the power of empire. And it is a message of how they are to overcome, not through violence, but through the victory of Jesus' work on Calvary's cross. It is a message of hope that though it looks like the empire will win, there will be a day when there is no more tears and no more pain and no more sickness and evil will be judged and Jesus, the Lamb of God, will take away the sins of the world. God, we thank you so much for the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God and his name is Jesus.
Thank you for the book of Revelation and how it has been preserved for 2,000 years. There was this amazing message of hope and comfort to people who were suffering intensely under a violent, oppressive Roman emperor. Thank you, God, that the hope you give us in this book and beyond is so much bigger than whatever circumstances we're going through. And so the hope which was evoked and brought about 2,000 years ago to the early Christians through this writing, God, would that same hope help us get through whatever we're getting through, whatever we're going through right now? God, we might not be suffering for our faith, but we are going through difficulty. So God, the hope that is instilled in this book and the message that you win, that there's victory in you, that that would also permeate our lives and our circumstances 2,000 years later. We need you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Um, if you're watching this before 10 a.m. on Sunday, Halloween, uh, October 31st, come on by at 10 o'clock at Bullard from 10 to 12. We're going to have an amazing Halloween party, and we've got a lot of fun stuff planned. Um, next week, we begin a brand new sermon series called It's Fall, Y'all, and we're going to have a great time. We hope you have an amazing week. Happy Halloween.